Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. There's a narrative in our culture that says faith is great as long as you keep it private. That if you bring your faith out into public, then in our culture that's seen as being divisive and possibly even harmful to society. And yet, Jesus is constantly um, calling his followers to bring their faith in him out into public. So, what does that look like? And especially, um, is there a way to do that that not only is not harmful to society, but could actually lead to greater peace and justice in the world? That's the question we're looking at this summer. And especially, we're looking at what it means to go public with your faith in two big areas, justice and evangelism. Cornell West is a philosopher, he's a, an author, he's a social activist, and he's very famously said that justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is what love looks like in public. So this week, we are concluding our study of what it looks like to go public with our faith in the realm of justice. You know, in my lifetime, I have never seen a time when our society has been more passionate about justice. But in my lifetime, I've also never seen a time when there's been a greater, how should we say it, um, bifurcation of views about justice. In other words, it's controversial. And one of the most controversial ideas is the idea of reparations. It's this idea that if a person or a community has been robbed or plundered, that what has been taken from them should be restored back to them. Now, nobody would disagree with that in principle, but when the subject of reparations comes up in our culture, especially with regard to either African Americans or Native Americans, all of a sudden things get pretty hot pretty quick. 
And one of the main objections comes from white people who would say, look, if I stole something, something from someone, of course I should pay them back. But my family never stole land or owned slaves, so why should I pay the debt for someone else's theft? What do you say to that? Maybe you might have a lot that you would say to that, but this morning I want to encourage us to look at what does Jesus have to say about it? Because most of us in this room would probably profess to be followers of Jesus, so it's important for us to know what does Jesus say about this? But if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, maybe you're exploring faith, why should you bother to listen to what Jesus has to say about this? Because there are a lot of people in our world who are really committed to the idea of reparations, but without Jesus. So why bring Jesus into this? Well, the answer is simple. It's because Jesus offers us a way of doing justice and a reason for doing justice that is infinitely more powerful and transformational than anything else the world can offer us. And I know that's a bold claim, so let's look at what Jesus has to show us. You know, the word reparations comes from the, the simple word repair. In this passage, Jesus shows us three things about repair. There's a call to repair, there's the practice of repair, and the motivation for repair. The call, the practice, and the motivation for repair. So let's look at those. And first, there's a call to repair. In this passage, a lawyer comes to Jesus and he wants to test him. He sees Jesus is constantly welcoming sinners, hanging out with them, eating them, loving them. And this lawyer thinks, well, obviously Jesus doesn't take the law very seriously. So he sets a trap. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Basically, he's thinking, you know, that Jesus is going to say, oh, it doesn't matter what you do. God loves anybody regardless of, of how they live, at which point the lawyer's going to say, gotcha. This lawyer has a moralistic paradigm. He, he thinks, look, if I'm a virtuous person, if I'm a good person, not like those sinners over there, then God will love me and accept me because of what I do. Jesus wants to shatter his moralistic paradigm, but the way he does it is by kind of playing along with the lawyer for a little bit. So he says, oh, you want to talk about the law? Okay, let's go there. Tell me, Jesus says, how do you read the law? So the lawyer gives a summary from Scripture. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you got it. <laughs> go and do likewise. Jesus is saying, great. Now, you can tell, by the way, at this point that the lawyer is really starting to squirm under the weight of what Jesus is saying because he realizes the implications of all of this. And yet, he doesn't want to let go of his moralistic framework. So this is what he says, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus, who's my neighbor? Basically, his idea is that if I can just whittle this down to a very small group of people, then I can still find a way to perform my way into God's love. Basically, he wants to know, Jesus, what are the minimum entrance requirements for the kingdom of God? So Jesus tells a story about what it means to really love your neighbor. And here's what he says. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now, this is a real-life road. It's, it's very mountainous, very rocky. There are lots of twists and turns. It was also very notorious for being an incredibly dangerous road. In all these twists and turns, there are lots of rocks and caves in here for robbers to hide. So this is a real-life scenario. Anyone in Jesus' audience would have known about this road. So what happens in the story? Well, first a priest comes by, and then a Levite passes by. Now, these were not just religious people. They were religious professionals. These religious professionals would have been expected to stop and give aid to the guy in the ditch. That's what they would have been expected to do. But instead, each one of them, when they see the guy lying in the ditch, they don't go over to his side of the road. Instead, they pass by on the other side of the road. But then a Samaritan comes along, sees the guy lying in a ditch, and stops to give aid. Now, many of you probably know that in the ancient world, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Samaritans, the Jews considered Samaritans to be religious heretics, and racial outsiders. Do you see what Jesus is doing in this story? It's kind of, if, if we were to put this in modern terms, it's kind of like this. Like if you lean right politically, it's kind of like Jesus is saying, but then a democratic socialist came along and gave aid. <laughs> or if you lean right, um, or I mean, if you lean left politically, it's kind of like Jesus is saying, but then a guy in a MAGA hat stopped to give aid. Jesus is saying, whatever group you hate the most, imagine they're the ones who stopped to give aid. This is brilliant storytelling. In fact, sociologists will tell us today, they talk often about our tendency as human beings to divide the world into in-groups and out-groups. And they will also point out that for many years in this country, uh, people were more motivated by love for their in-group than they were by hatred for the out-group. So, for instance, 1968 was a uh, a year of tremendous social upheaval in this country. You had the assassinations of uh, Martin Luther King, of Bobby Kennedy. You had the Vietnam War and protests over that. You had a lot of protests over racial injustice in this country. 1968 was a year of tremendous social upheaval, but sociologists will say that we were able to get through that as a country because people were more motivated by love for their in-group than they were by hatred for the out-group. Today, that's flip-flopped. Today, we're more motivated by hatred for the out-group than we are by love for our in-group. In other words, we're more defined by what we hate than by what we love, and it's tearing us apart. Do you now see what Jesus is doing in this parable? He makes the hero of the story, the Samaritan, somebody from the out-group. But who's the guy lying in the ditch? Is he in-group or out-group? Well, he's naked, so we can't tell by the way he's dressed, and he's unconscious, so we can't tell by the way he talks. So how does the Samaritan know if the guy lying in the ditch is in-group or out-group? The answer is, he doesn't. And that's the point. Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter who it is. If someone is in need, that's your neighbor. Jesus is saying, at that point, there is no in-group or out-group. There's only human beings. But here's the even more amazing thing about this story. Who's fault is it for what happened to the guy in the ditch? The robbers. They're the ones who beat him and left him for dead and took everything he had. But who takes responsibility for it? The Samaritan. 
The Samaritan sees the guy lying in a ditch, goes over to help him. He does not say, hey, this isn't my fault. I'm not to blame for what happened here. I have no responsibility for this person. This isn't my debt to pay. He could have said that, but he doesn't. What he does say is, no, it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility because this is my neighbor. Friends, here's the point. This is a call to repair. Jesus is demolishing all of our equivocations and all of our um, rationalizations about whose fault it is and about who's to blame. He's saying that, that it doesn't matter whose fault it is. What matters is that we all have a responsibility to one another, especially when we see a victim of injustice or oppression. There is a call on our lives to do whatever we can to give aid and bring repair to their lives. Now, what does that look like? Well, that leads to our next point. We've just seen the call to repair. But secondly, Jesus shows us the practice of repair. Because here's the question. In order to bring repair to something, what's the first thing you need? For instance, if you have a broken chair, it's just lying in pieces on the ground in front of you. What's the first thing you need? The first thing you need to repair that chair is a, is a vision of what the chair is supposed to look like when it's put back together. You can't repair the chair unless you know what wholeness looks like for the chair. We don't know what repair looks like unless we have a vision of what wholeness looks like. The Bible has a word for that. In fact, it's one of the most important words in the whole Bible because it's the foundation of God's vision for the whole world. It's the Hebrew word shalom. And if you've been coming to this church for a while, you know that we talk about this word quite a bit. Um, the Hebrew word shalom is often translated peace, but it means a lot more than just inner tranquility or uh, the absence of conflict. In the Bible, uh, shalom means wholeness. Uh, one of the best illustrations I've ever heard of this uh, is from another preacher who says, imagine that you have a thousand threads and you just throw them on a pile uh, on the table in front of you. You've just got thousands of threads lying there in a heap. But that's not a fabric. The only way those thousands of threads becomes a fabric is if you weave them together in such a way that they interpenetrate one another and support each other and, 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 um, and weave each other together and, and, um, and hold each other together. You've, the only way those thousands of threads becomes a fabric is if you weave them together in, in a way that they interpenetrate one another so that it becomes something strong and beautiful and warm and powerful. Friends, biblical shalom is like a fabric. In fact, um, there's a wonderful theologian named Cornelius Plantinga who puts it like this. He says that the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Now, you look at that and you realize this is very different from what our modern Western world um, says that justice is. In our culture, we tend to think of justice more in terms of individual rights. So it's, it's less a fabric and more about every thread being free to do its own thing. And yet, the biblical vision of justice is more interwovenness. It's more like a fabric. That means that your stuff isn't just your stuff. 
that we have a communal responsibility towards one another, that other people actually have a claim on your resources. So in the Bible, that means, especially when it comes to the subject of reparations, that what Jesus is showing us here is, is that we have a, an obligation to pour out our resources for the sake of others, especially those who are the victims of injustice and oppression in this world. In fact, there's another wonderful theologian named Bruce Waltke, and and Bruce Waltke is an expert in um, biblical Hebrew. Bruce Waltke went through the whole book of Proverbs, and he analyzed every single time that Proverbs uses the words righteous and wicked. And here's the definition that he comes up with for those words as a result of his analysis. He says, the righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage the community, but the wicked disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. The righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. Do you realize that is exactly what Jesus is showing us in this parable? The Samaritan disadvantages himself in order to advantage the guy who's lying in the ditch. And and there are all kinds of resources that he devotes to this project. And the first of them is time. This would have been a huge interruption in the Samaritan's journey. The second resource he devotes is effort. Not just physical effort, but all kinds of effort. I mean, he's got to administer first aid. He's got to load the guy on his animal. He's got to take the guy to the inn. Third, uh, thirdly, this is incredibly dangerous for the Samaritan. Because on that road, remember, those robbers could have been hiding right around the corner. And anybody who stopped to give aid would have been in danger. Those robbers would have been waiting there, ready to pounce. Hey, fresh meat. This would have been incredibly dangerous for the Samaritan. But lastly, um, this was incredibly costly, financially costly for the Samaritan. He gives the innkeeper two denarii, which is worth two days' wages. And on top of that, he tells the innkeeper, hey, if you have any other expenses, charge it to my account. I will repay you. This is incredibly financially costly for the Samaritan. In fact, I want to linger here a little bit. You know, a few weeks ago when we began looking at what the Bible has to say about justice, we saw that there were a number of components to biblical justice. The first one we saw was equality. Biblical justice means equality, that every human being has equal worth and value because every human being is created in the image of God. Second component of biblical justice we saw was advocacy, especially for the poor and the oppressed. That means that, yes, God loves every human being equally, but God has a special concern for the most vulnerable members of society, for those who are poor and oppressed. Now, by the way, we see both of these components of biblical justice in this passage, don't we? But Beyond that, we see a third component of biblical justice in this passage, and that's generosity. You know, the Bible looks at money and wealth very differently from the way our world does. In our culture, we have a tendency to say, hey, your money is yours. Your stuff belongs to you. And if you choose to give to others, if you choose to be generous to others, then that's very noble, very virtuous of you. But you are under no moral obligation to do that. The Bible says, no, that your money and your stuff does not belong to you. It belongs to God. And that if you fail to pour out your resources, including your financial resources, in generosity, that means you're not just being stingy. It's unjust. It's sin. So when it comes to the subject of reparations, 
Jesus is showing us that not only does it not matter whose fault it is, but that every single one of us is under obligation. We have a communal responsibility to one another to pour out our resources, including our financial resources, and to do so especially for those who are the victims of injustice and oppression. So here at Central West End Church, one of the things that drives us is, is a conviction that, that we have a responsibility to the community around us, especially to address the inequities and the inequalities that exist in our community as a result of injustice. And the reason we do that is because Jesus shows us that's what it means to be a neighbor. Because did you notice how Jesus flips the question at the end of the passage? He says, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Do you see how Jesus flips the question? The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, that's not the question. The question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, to whom will you be a neighbor? That is a radically different question and a radically higher standard, and it leads to our last point. We've seen the call to repair. We've just seen the practice of repair. But lastly, Jesus shows us the motivation for repair. Remember we said that inside the story, the Samaritan has no way to tell whether the guy in the ditch is part of his in-group or his out-group, right? But what about the people outside of the story listening in? Every single commentator um, pointed out that, the, um, that when Jesus um, does not describe the ethnic identity of the guy lying in the ditch, that any Jewish person in his um, audience would have naturally assumed that the guy lying in the ditch was Jewish, and therefore they would have naturally identified with the guy lying in the ditch. Friends, Jesus wants us to identify with the guy in the ditch too. Yes, he wants us to live like the Samaritan. He wants us to live up to this incredibly high standard, infinitely higher than even the lawyer could have imagined. But the only way we can live like the Samaritan is if we identify with the guy in the ditch. Jesus is saying, I want you to imagine that you were beaten, stripped naked, and left half dead lying in a ditch. And I want you to imagine that your only hope of rescue was from a hated enemy who had every reason to pass you by, but instead he came over to your side of the road and he showed you grace in a display of extravagantly costly love. Wouldn't you want someone to do that for you? Of course you would. You would want someone to come over to your side of the road like that. And if someone did that for you, that would get inside of your heart. It would change you. So that the next time you saw someone lying in a ditch, you would instinctively feel the very same thing the, the Samaritan in this story felt. You remember what it was? But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. That word compassion is a word that's describing a very intense, overwhelming emotion that happens literally in your intestines. In fact, the way I like to translate this word compassion is gut love. You know, there are many places in the Bible that describe the different emotions that Jesus had, but by far the, the main emotion that you see Jesus displaying most often in the Gospels is this one, gut love. So that whenever Jesus sees someone in need, gut love. 
Whenever Jesus sees someone wounded or hurting or oppressed, gut love. Listen, Jesus wants us to identify with the man lying in the ditch. But if that's the case, then who is the, the, the hero in the story? Who's the Samaritan in this story? In other words, who's the one who's hated and rejected by all? Who is the one who, whenever he sees the poor and the needy and the oppressed, he instinctively feels love in his gut? And who is the one who, when he sees you lying in a ditch, instead of passing over on the other side of the road, he comes over to your side of the road and he pours out his resources for you in a display of extravagantly costly love? Who is that? It's Jesus. Jesus, friends, don't you see, when Jesus came to earth, he came over to your side of the road. Jesus isn't just a good neighbor, he's the ultimate neighbor. And the place that Jesus displayed the ultimate neighbor love was on the cross, because on the cross, he didn't just risk his life, he gave his life. Jesus was the one who was beaten. Jesus is the one who was stripped naked on the cross. Jesus is the one who took a spear in his gut in order to love you from his gut. And Jesus took the oil of his love and the wine of his blood and he poured them into our wounds in order to heal us from all of the ways that we fail to love God and love our neighbor. Friends, the point of this story is that none of us could ever perfectly love God and love neighbor, that we could never perform our way into God's love. And that the only way God's love could come into our life is through a costly, compassionate display of gut love from Jesus for us on the cross. That's the only way the love of God could come into our life. And if that gut love comes into our life, then it transforms us into a vessel, into a neighbor of the very same gut love to the world and our neighbors around us. What would that look like? You know, in February 1968, in Memphis, Tennessee, Uh, Two African-American sanitation workers were tragically killed when they were caught in the trash compactor of the garbage truck they were working on. It it literally swallowed them alive. It was horrible. Their names were Robert Walker and Echol Cole. And as a result of that, a few days later, 1,300 African-American sanitation workers began to march in protest over the brutal working conditions that they had to endure every single day. And one of the defining characteristics of their protest was the signs that they carried that said, I am a man. Two months later, on April 3rd, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King himself came to Memphis to support the sanitation workers' strike. Now, there were a lot of people on his team who didn't want him to go to Memphis, and not because they didn't care about sanitation workers, but because for a number of reasons. One of them was Dr. King was trying to launch a massive campaign in Washington, D.C. at the time, so they thought this would be a distraction. Another reason was just the sheer exhaustion that Dr. King was experiencing at the time. But all of the members of his team didn't want him to go because they knew that if Martin Luther King went to Memphis, that he would be a target and his life would be in danger. And in fact, that's exactly what happened because the very next day, on April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King was assassinated as he stood on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. And today, you can go to the Lorraine Motel. It's the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis. And the highlight, the climax of the whole tour is they bring you out on the second floor to the balcony and you can literally stand within a few feet of the very spot 
where Dr. King fell when he was assassinated. It's incredibly powerful. But right before they bring you out there, there's a little room off to the side where they show you a film of the very last speech that Martin Luther King ever gave the night before he was assassinated. It's an incredibly famous speech. He says, I've been to the mountaintop, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I've seen it, and we're going to get there because tonight I am not worried. Tonight I'm not fearing any man. It's like he knew that he was going to be killed, and yet he did it anyway. Why would he do something like that? You know, during that speech, he came back to the story of the Good Samaritan, which was one of his favorite passages to preach on. And Dr. King asked the question, he said, you know, the priest and the Levite probably had many reasons why they failed to stop and give aid to the guy in the ditch, but maybe one of the biggest reasons was fear. Because they would have been asking the question, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? And Dr. King always famously said, that's not the question. The Good Samaritan reversed the question. And Dr. King said, i got to reverse the question too. The real question is not, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? The real question is, if I don't help this person, what will happen to them? Martin Luther King answered that question by giving his life And he always said that the reason he could do that was because of the costly, compassionate gut love that Jesus poured out for him on Mount Calvary. Friends, if the gut love of Jesus could do something like that for Martin Luther King as he faced assassination in order to bring repair to his neighbors in the community of Memphis, then what could the costly gut love of Jesus do for you and for me and for all of us as we face whatever challenges we might face in order to bring repair to our neighbors in this community? Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for sending Jesus to come over to our side of the road. We praise you that Jesus did not pass us by and that you don't pass us by. We thank you that you love us so much that even though you had every reason to pass us by because of our failure to love you, failure to love our neighbor, God, because of the selfishness and the self-absorption and the self-centeredness of our heart, nonetheless, Lord Jesus, you were more motivated by love for the out-group Not just love for the in-group, but love for the out-group. Father, our world doesn't even have a category for that. We praise you that that's your category, Father. And we pray this morning that you would fill us with the same gut love of Jesus and that you would transform us more and more into the neighbors that you've called us to be in order that we might be vessels of repair in the neighborhood around us. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.